New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Ali, thank you very much. Um, and as much as anything that Ali said is in any way true of me, that's by the grace of God. And I want to give glory to him for that. And please pray because I am working with this organization, Living Leadership. Um, Living Leadership exists across the UK and Ireland and has some presence in other European countries. And really our heart is to come alongside leaders, Christian leaders and their families, especially their spouses, to encourage them, support them. And because of that, we carry a lot. You can imagine uh, just even the stories and situations you're aware of. We carry a lot of things uh, and I need a lot of grace um, and your prayers in order to do that well and faithfully. Um, we are thinking about committing to healthy leader care and conduct. I will try and stay out of the way of the screen as much as I can, or at least move so that everybody can see that at some point, but I do know it's low. There is a handout, which hopefully you got on the way in, which contains the, the, the bones of what I'm going to say. And I do want us to be interactive. And that means that at any point, if you want to ask a question, please do interrupt me. I'll try and pause at a few points and give you an opportunity to ask questions, but I don't mind being interrupted. Um, just you know, wave the hand and I'll stop appropriately. Um, or if I'm not doing that, just get up and shout or whatever, um, because we can learn together in these areas. Um, if you were at my seminar on Monday, Monday, Tuesday, which day was that? Monday, I've lost track. Monday it was, okay. So if you were here in this tent on Monday in the seminar, um, I talked then about the problem of power in leadership. Um, referenced the, the book written by my colleague in Living Leadership, the founder uh, and executive director, Marcus Honeyset, which is available on the bookstall. Um, but I think all of us know that there is a problem or there are problems in Christian leadership. You don't need me to go over the specifics of that. You will know that either from your own experience or from Christian media or secular media. There have been spectacular falls from uh, leadership. And of course, the impact of that is profound, both on the reputation of the church, on the faith of people, on the personal lives of those who are damaged in the process. And we've got to do better. It is not worthy uh, of the name Christian when those things happen. Again, I won't go into the details of that. I'm not here to talk about individual situations. Um, but we know that there are these issues. So what can we do about that? That's really what this seminar is about. Now, um, the scriptures warn Christian leaders. This is just one example. The words of the Apostle Paul to the elders from Ephesus when he met them in a place called Miletus, and he says to them, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Stop and think about that. He bought. In fact, it's quite an unusual phrase to say that God bought the church with his own blood. It's a strong statement about the deity of the Lord Jesus, but it's also a strong emphasis and reminder of the value of the church to God. I know, Paul writes or says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth 
in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. That's Acts 20, 28 to 31. Again, we could go to other places in the New Testament that talk about those who teach being judged more strictly and the responsibility that those who teach in the church have. Paul says, this is going to happen. So the fact that this is happening in our day and age shouldn't be a shock to us if we've read the New Testament. But at the same time, it ought to, as it does, disappoint us. It ought to make us stop and wonder why. And we should wonder not only about what went wrong in those individual cases, but what might be wrong with our ways of doing leadership, our expectations, our systems that seem to allow that to happen and even to get to the stage where finally when something comes to light, it's, it's horrendous. It's to a degree that maybe none of us ever expected to see. So scripture warns leaders. You'll notice that the picture that I'm using for this seminar is a handshake. Um, think about that. A handshake takes two hands and they have to come together to form something that has strength to hold that together. Maybe another way to think about it would be if you want to hold something securely, you put your two hands around it. And the whole idea behind this seminar is that we need two hands if we're going to respond well to what's facing us with leadership. So on one hand, and based on the, the warning we've just read in, a, in Acts 20, we need to think about leader conduct how are leaders behaving themselves? What are they doing? And how can we raise that standard? So leaders who serve as shepherds, that's what Paul said, you shepherd the flock and within godly, safe and healthy boundaries, who know the limits of their leadership, who have some sense of definition of that, who know that there are places they will not go. That's what boundaries mean to say there are things I will not allow myself to think about or the thoughts that I will not entertain if they come into my head. I'm not going to dwell on that, entertain it or allow it to become fixed in my thinking. There are actions I will not take. That's one half of the equation and it's vitally important. And we've seen lots of examples where that's gone wrong. So we will talk about that. Just pause for a moment. You don't have to tell me, but, but ask yourself the question, in your church, in your context, how would you rate leader conduct in terms of its healthiness, in terms of how well it, it's described by, by that sentence? Where would you put it on the, on the scale? Again, don't, don't answer me that. But if I ask that question more broadly, where do you think we collectively are on that scale? Any, anyone? We start over on the far green at the outside. Anybody want to say that's where we are? Anybody want to put us right at the, the far red? Do you think we're closer to the green or the red? Closer to the green, Johnny? Brilliant. Anybody else feel differently about that? Gilbert? Okay, tease that out for me. What, or don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> but. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, so they're good examples. You're, you're thinking of, of people who are speaking up and doing well. And part of the problem is, of course, there are, also, there are those bad examples too, which we might be aware of and sort of dwell on. But um, we mustn't miss what is good. There are many, many good and faithful Christian leaders. But at the same time, there are high-profile cases that tell us things are not entirely good. Anybody else want to make any comment about that scale when it comes to leader conduct? Or any of the issues that you see without talking about specific situations that you think are issues? Yep, one at the back. Okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. So for the benefit of the recording, the comment, and maybe others who, who might not have heard, um, and keep me right if I misrepresent that, but that we're more likely to hear about the bad examples. The media loves to report those sort of sensational stories. Good practice is not always celebrated. I think that's a problem for us in many senses, that we underestimate actually the importance and significance of stability. I think across particularly the evangelical church, there is this prioritization of the new and of pioneering and of change and of difference. And actually sometimes we need to celebrate better the, the, the beauty of keeping going in a steady way along obedience in the same direction. But we don't do that. It's only when a big story breaks that it hits the headlines. And if that's bad news, that makes us all think everything's bad. But yep. Yes, please do. Okay. Okay. So, yes, yeah. So there's a question there, and that's a good question to think about, isn't it? Is it the leader's conduct as a person or the leader's conduct as a leader? And, of course, then the third question is, should there or, or can we distinguish between those two? Which is also a question about what we understand Christian leadership to be. And one of the things I said on, on the seminar on, on Monday was that um, at the heart of Christian leadership is not only what we teach, but what we model. And therefore, the gap between what the leader does or how they lead and who they are in the New Testament really isn't there. But sometimes it can be there in our structures or our expectations, but it's a really interesting thing to think around, isn't it? How might we help to close that gap? How do we identify leaders? How important is character within that? How important is integrity and consistency within it? So we may have a problem with how we identify and recruit leaders if we do that on the basis of gifting. Um, well, I like to say if we do it on the basis of charisma in either of its senses, either in the Pauline sense, the Apostle Paul uses it to mean spiritual gifting, that's not enough. Um, or the later sense, which actually it is a Bible word that then got distorted in our culture to mean somebody with a strong personality. Um, and as I said on Monday, I'm increasingly thinking that what we call charisma is a, a lack of self-control and is actually an indication of a character flaw. Now, I'm being careful about that because God gives us varied personalities. But all of us need to recognize that character love and gentleness and all of the fruit of the spirit which culminates in self-control is foundational to leadership so okay let that's one half of the equation which we will talk about a bit more in a moment 
But the New Testament also gives commands to those who are led within the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What does it mean to give double honor to those who have pastoral leadership in your churches? What would that mean? So double honor, in other words, there should be a sense in which they are given a a greater sense of honor. Every Christian should be honored. We should be honoring everyone. Leaders should be honored. But what is that sense of double honor? And are we doing that? Or are we kind of taking an approach that we're saying, well, we pay you what you're due. What what, What else are you looking for? Do our leaders feel that they are doubly honored? And again, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Some versions say submit to their authority. I don't think that's a good translation because that suggests submit to their position. But actually Hebrews raises a higher standard, submit to them in relationship to them. And they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So there is this accounting of leaders that we saw on the first slide as well. They have to give account to God, but they're doing this for your sake. So let them do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So how are we doing in the church in terms of making ministry joyful for those who lead us? Because that's our responsibility. You see that? Yeah? And, and, and if your leader doesn't seem to be joyful in their leadership, you or I need to ask ourselves, what can I do? What is my responsibility? Now, this is where the handshake comes from. We have leader conduct, and this is really hard with a, a wireless mic, okay? But we have leader conduct and we have leader care. And if we're going to have strong partnership between the leaders and those who are led, we've got to do well in both of those. If we're going to create a secure space for leadership and ministry to happen within, we've got to have both of those hands coming together. One of them alone is not enough to keep that secure. So leader care and leader conduct, leader care, leaders who receive double honor and encouragement from those they lead. And I want to be absolutely clear here. I am not saying, not for one second, that whenever a leader abuses leadership, that is somehow the the fault of the church because the church didn't care for them. That would be wrong. Those leaders will give account to God. He will hold them to, not those leaders, all of us in leadership will give account to God. But... We need to make sure as the church and in Christian organizations that we are also doing our bit in caring for leaders. And so not the moral failures and abuses, but those things there is no excuse for. But when people burn out and drop out and and just can't sustain leadership and ministry anymore, we must ask ourselves, what are we doing to them? Okay, is that fair to say? So ask ourselves the question, the little scale on the bottom again, how are we doing, how are you doing in your church in terms of caring for your leaders? Are they able to serve joyfully? Are they encouraged? Are they provided for? Gilbert. 
Yeah. Okay, so this question, so the, the comment for the recording is, um, are we expecting them to do too much? And of course, we can't generalize. I, I can't say in every of your contexts they are. I mean, scripture warns against laziness in all of us, including those in leadership. And I have to be honest, in my work, sometimes I see people and I think there is a laziness or a self-protection that comes in. We must guard against that as leaders. But yes, sometimes we create unrealistic expectations. Our churches and our systems kind of, you know, we expect that person to be able to do everything equally well. But that's not how God makes people, is it? No, I think to be in pastoral work or ministry, you do need to have a combination of three abilities, if you like, as well as the character qualities. You need to be able to teach and you need to be able to provide pastoral care, which are really two aspects of one thing. It's applying the truth and word of God from to a larger group and to individuals or families, if you like. Uh, but you do need some organizational skills, not because you're called to be a manager, but because if you're going to organize your time and manage your time and, uh, and contribute into the organization of the church, you need that. But you don't have to be equally strong in all three of those. And of course, if you have a team of people, it might even be that some don't have any of those but can lean on each other. But so sometimes our expectations of the one person are unrealistic. Sometimes that one person's expectations of the church are unrealistic as well. And sometimes, often in my experience, the expectations are not clear. They're not in writing. They're kind of based on how the previous person did it or how the guy 20 years ago did it often. And that kind of unrealistic memory of how ministry worked then and for that person in their life circumstance, which is not the same for this person in their life circumstance. If that leader was single or without children or with growing up children, or if that leader's wife was very involved in ministry, and that's a crucial one, the, the spouse's role. Often there are expectations that nobody has ever written down you come into the job and suddenly you realize people thought they were getting two for the price of one, okay? And that's not a bog off deal. That's where the leader might just say, bog off and I'm way out of here. Sorry, forgive me um, for that. But yeah, any, any um, I won't get one free, bog off. That's what I mean, just for clarity. Anyway, any other comments? So we're, I mean, I've asked you to think about your own churches on this scale, but, but we are starting to talk about the wider context. How are we doing more widely in caring for leaders? How do we think? Right up in the top of the green? Right down at the bottom of the red? More towards the green, more towards the red? I'm not getting a lot of feedback. Just confused. We've no idea. We've never asked the question. Sorry. Towards the red. Okay, so that's a church leader saying that we're doing well on leader conduct and badly on leader care, and that's fine. Uh, Philip, yeah? Yeah? Yes, yeah. So again, for the recording, the suggestion is that we've seen people who, who are strong in one of those, at least one of those three areas, teaching, pastoral care, uh, and, and administration, organization, but, but terrible in, in another one. Uh, and maybe we need to be realistic on the leader care side that actually, um, you know, they are going to fail or at least not be as strong in one of those areas. And how do we put around them what they need? Now, of course, to do that, we have to know what questions we're asking when we recruit a person. 
That's where our expectations need to be clear. It's not fair to the person if we didn't tell them clearly what we expect and then they get into the job and what was written is not actually what we're really expecting. And so we need to know what we expect. We need to be clear about it. We need to base reviews on that. I think on the training side, having been involved in training for ministry and still involved to a degree, um, that we can feel there as well. We're not training in, the, in, the, in all of the skills that people need or we're not helping to identify where people's strengths are. So I think, yes, we can do better on that because we could be setting someone up to, to fail, couldn't we? Sorry, yeah. Yes. Okay. So we, we can often, the comment is that especially in youth and children's work, we, we can uh, appoint very young people, inexperienced people, and we throw them in at the deep end, don't give them a lot of support uh, or training along the way. So we could do better to have training around that, good support, good reviews. Um, you know, sometimes we kind of the mentality, oh, well, they're young, they know what young people need and they know what they're doing and what would I know? Or we have the mentality, I had to do it so they can figure it out or whatever, but we could do better. We could do better. The age thing is interesting as well, isn't it? You, you know that if, if someone is appointed into a role relatively young and with relatively little life experience, with both the question of how have they proven that they can actually, if you look at the maturity that is required for overseers in the pastoral epistles. So there's a question about that but also if they are young then we need to recognize that that that's going to take time there's no point sort of saying oh expecting them to have the life experience of someone 20 years older so how can we supplement that how can we put around that the support that they need so that they can develop their gift but i do think broadly i'll say this that in our culture we have been too quick to prioritize and to give significant responsibility to people at too young an age if i'm not i hope i'm not just saying that because i can't deny any longer that i'm middle age um unless i'm going to live extraordinarily long life then i've i've passed the midpoint but you know that i don't think it's just that i do think that when we talk about i mean the word elder in the new testament presbyterus it's, it's an older man or older person uh, you, that there is there is a sense of having a certain amount of life experience. And I'm not saying that therefore means you have to be X age to be an elder. But it does mean that if we're going to put people in the position of that responsibility who are younger, we've got to support them well and, and not just throw them in and expect that they can do it. So I think you're right. It's a very long-winded answer to a very simple statement. So. Yeah. Any other comments um, just before we move into maybe some of the the practicalities of what we might do. Ali? Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the comment from Ali talking from experience of being currently a counselor, having worked in a church team, having been the daughter of someone in ministry, um, is in her current role as a counselor, there is supervision and accountability. Um, why is that not always there for pastors? Who are they accountable to? And of course, in starting to answer that, we've got to recognize the diversity of our structures and context. If you're in a non-denominational church, you won't have that built in formally. If you're in a denominational context, you may have it there formally, but it still might not work. I mean, we, we work across churches, and I'm very aware that, you know, I look as a, as a 
person in a Baptist context, and I sort of, you know, in ignorance, think, oh, well, the, the Anglicans have that sorted because they've got their bishop. It just isn't as simple as that. Um, nor does it mean that the folks in, in a more independent church context don't have good supervision. But the reality is that if we're going to take that seriously, that accountability, that whatever the structures that are there, we are going to have to say as a leader, I will seek that out. I will seek that out. Now, the tragedy that I find is that though people just sometimes don't know where to find it. So they, it's not that they don't want it. The number of people even my age that I would say would, you know, would say I, I would have loved to have a mentor and it just wasn't there. And I know there are people who do, but there you go. And that is, that is the thing. I think we need to lift that culture and it is something in living leadership we're doing. We're growing a network of people like that across the UK and Ireland. We're not the only ones, but we've got to keep raising that and make that the norm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. So supervision again for the recording for others is, is that where there is compassion fatigue or someone is flagging and care for that leader. And I think that's right. It's not, it's not only supervision in the sense that when things go wrong, we're there to step in and clamp down or sort it out or fudge the issue. Um, it's actually how are we supporting and sustaining and where can leaders find that from? So again, in living leadership, we talk about mentoring and pastoral care for pastors. Um, and our associates who do most of that, I as a staff member do some, but they um, are committed to, to our, our simple principle is this, that we have no agenda for that person other than their well-being in Christ. Okay, so, you know, we, we, we're not looking for anything from them, nor can we open up any doors for them. We're not, you know, there's no agenda there other than that they are thriving. It is incredibly hard for many people in ministry to find that, and especially when you're feeling vulnerable. Because when you're feeling vulnerable, it feels like you can't trust anyone. And so if, it might sound silly, but a safe space. I mean, the basic question is, who is pastoring your pastor? Have you ever asked that question? And maybe you should, not in an inquisitive way or in, inquisitorial way to them, who's pastoring you? You know, you claim to be pastoring me. Well, who's, I don't mean it like that, but actually, who is caring for you? Do you have that? Who is watching over your soul? Now, there are different answers to how we might find that where we might find it it might be found within a denominational context it might be a local fraternal it might be a living leadership associate it might be a counselor it might be uh, a friend it might be a spouse and spouses have a key role to play and there is the flip side does that person actually want that do they want to be watched over do they want that input that's the conduct side but you see how these two things have to come together so let me say a bit more about each of them and simply to say that our response in living leadership to this issue has been to develop two codes of best practice. So a code of best practice in caring for Christian leaders and a code of best practice for conduct of living leadership. Those are available to churches and Christian organizations through something that we call the Leadership Commitment Scheme, which I'll mention again at the end, or if you take away one of the little leaflets which tells you about what we offer in Northern Ireland, you'll find uh, a link to that inside that leaflet. It's the purple one on the inside. Now, again, uh, please 
don't think, I'm not trying to say this is the only or definitive thing. This is not a seminar plugging living leadership. But I do think that what we offer here is quite distinctive because what we recognized was that, that many churches and many individual leaders don't have a clear a clear sense of what is good practice. If you don't know what good practice is, how do you know if you're doing it? If you don't know what bad practice is, how do you know when you've strayed into it? Um, and, and many churches, honestly, they, they, when it come, we're kind of aware of the legal requirements of employing somebody or stipending somebody or whatever the relationship is. But that's sort of a minimalistic thing, isn't it? I mean, do we actually think that the world's standard is the ideal or do we not think that we could do more on that so we can do more we can aim for best practice in both the conduct and care of christian leaders again many christian leaders don't have a clear set of boundaries or if they do it's something that comes maybe from the denomination or whatever which is great but it's not tailored to them personally in other words that might cover issues in a general way but you know as a leader that you have an area of temptation um, or a weakness and that you need an additional boundary or you need to tailor that so what we encourage and what these documents encourage is that you're working that out individually it's not a one-size-fits-all okay so there's a code that is giving you pointers but you then take that and work that out in your context and one question you might ask, and some of you might be saying, oh, hang on a second, really? You need, and these are not massive documents, by the way, they are accessible, but does this really need to be so formal? I've certainly had folks saying that, and not just in this, but in, in general. I mean, this is about a family relationship, and yes, it is. But because we know that things can go wrong, and because it's not only a family relationship in the modern world, there is this question of employment legislation, then, then having something that is formal and clear can be really helpful. The, the fact is good intentions just aren't enough. You might have good intentions, but you know the saying, that's what the path to hell is, is paved with. The fact is that our intentions might be good, but we've seen enough cases where that goes horribly wrong to realize we've got to think a bit more about this. It's dangerous to make assumptions. When I studied medicine, it was something that they said to us that if you assume, you make an ass out of you and me. A fool out of you and me. I mean, it's just, that's what happens. So you've got, you know, the A-S-S-U-M-E. So assumptions are dangerous. We can make all sorts of assumptions. He's the minister, he must have it sorted. She's in ministry, you know, she knows better than I. What would I know? And you know, or, but, but do you really know? Have you asked them? Have you said, is, are things, again, impressions can be wrong. In our culture, how's it going? Fine. Yeah. But what is that? What lies underneath that? The impression that, yes, you know, he's, he's preaching really well, so he must be in a good place. She's caring really well, she must be in a good place. But, but what's going on beneath the surface, in the quiet moments, alone, at home, in, in that context? And commitments, including in writing, express love. They are not somehow in conflict with the idea of a loving relationship. Otherwise, we wouldn't base our families on marriage, would we? And what's that all about? It's a covenant commitment with words that are binding and that shape what we 
will do in future. So it's not unloving or somehow, you know, formalizing it too much as long as we make the commitments appropriate and right and as long as we enact them in a loving way. And they drive us to better practice. So my encouragement to you is whether it's using the living leadership resources or not, that doesn't matter to me. But that you give some thought to this. You actually go and read if you do have something in your church or your denomination, read it and use it as the basis of review with people. So what does that contain? Well, leader conduct. We talk about commitments that leaders can make. And if, if people sign up to our leadership commitment scheme, this is what leaders are committing to. There are four here which are about how we treat people. I honor or I commit to honor every person I serve without favoritism. The, the sentences are slightly longer than that. But favoritism, that is one of the most frequent commands in the New Testament is that God, or frequent statements, God does not show favoritism. And the church is commanded against showing favoritism. And leaders, that's in James, if you show favoritism to the person who's well-dressed. And, and in, in the pastoral epistles, that leaders must not show favoritism. So I must commit to not showing favoritism. But that's okay. That would never happen in our churches, would it? But you, you see how a leader needs to say that is going to be my commitment. Now, of course, am I going to fail? Yes, but this is the commitment that will hold me and pull me back. And that others can say, you know what, Paul? You committed that you wouldn't, and I think you have. So we've got a basis to say, well, let's discuss that and look at that. And, and you know that this is what I'm desiring, so help me to keep to that. Yeah, uh, To listen carefully to others without condemning or prejudging. Now notice the wording of that. You do need to make a judgment if you are a pastor or pastoral caregiver listening to someone. A judgment as in deciding what is good or, or bad or healthy or unhealthy or right or wrong. The Lord Jesus didn't tell us. He did say, don't judge lest you be judged. In other words, he says, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your own eye. It's not that you don't make judgments. We're not all meant to go around gormlessly, you know, naive and just saying, oh, who am I to judge you? Um, no, actually, we are meant to help one another, but we must not prejudge. And the task of listening well and carefully, not jumping to quick conclusions, not assuming that we know what that person means by the word that they use, but taking time not to condemn. And of course, whilst we might make a judgment, we never condemn. Because the Lord Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. So even as we make a judgment that there is a sin issue here, we're not there to condemn that person, but to hold out to them salvation. So we can commit to that standard. And people could say, is that what you're doing? And thirdly, never to force, coerce, or manipulate another person, even when I believe that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah? I mean, that's not what we're here to do, is it? We do want to lead people, and we want to encourage people, and we want to to some degree persuade people, but we never want to manipulate, to coerce somebody. Why? Because the Word of God tells us that gospel Christian ministry is commending, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, it's commending God's truth to people, to their consciences in the sight of God. In other words, I will not ride roughshod over somebody's conscience. 
they must make their decision before God. And yes, they must take the consequences for that, which may include church discipline, for example, but they will, I'll never seek to force them, manipulate them, coerce them into doing what I believe to be right or even what scripture clearly says is right because they must make that response for themselves. And I will never misuse or abuse another person's trust in any of the ways or the forms that abuse can take. And then we have some that are uh, taking us into the area of, of ourselves in relationship to God. And, and I'm going to avoid unhealthy dependency in either direction. I'm going to work hard to make sure that the person with the pastoral need does not become dependent on me, but is depending on God. How will I do that? Of course, I'm going to involve the community of the church. It's not just going to be me. I'm going to work with them to a point where, where it's not just a one-way relationship. But I'm also going to avoid unhealthy dependency from me on them. That I will not fulfill my needs on the basis of being needed by other people. <laughs> you know, I need to be needed. Now again, will I fail in that? Yes. But others can say to me, how's it going? And how can we help you? And I can say I will aspire to this and I will review myself on that basis to ensure safety for people. Where, where I meet them and how I meet them will be safe, a safe place for them and for myself. In other words, before I just jump in the car to go and answer to that phone call, I'll think about should I tell someone else where I am and, and, and you know, am I actually wise going to that place? Could we meet in another place? Do, do I need to take some action? And to glorify God, and I know that is such a general thing, but it's so important, isn't it, that I'm committing that this will not be about building a name for me, but about always directing the praise to God, always acknowledging that it is him who works in us to accomplish his good will, that, that he is the Lord, not me. And then to acknowledge my limitations, this is becoming personal in the home, to acknowledge my limitations, to say I can't do everything, to know where my weaknesses are, to know when I need to lean on someone else, to know when there's another minister or pastor or colleague who's better at handling this than I am, to know when I need to signpost somebody to medical help or to uh, a professional counsellor, to honour my family, sorry, limitations also to know that I'm not a robot who can work equally well in every circumstance all the time, but to recognise that the limitations of my body and of my mind set limits on what I should do because if God had wanted me to do more, he would have made me differently or preserved me from that illness or whatever it may be. So recognising my limitations, honouring my family, so that I'm not neglecting them, so that I'm not giving them the dregs, so that I'm not going to be one of those people, I hope, who when my children grow up will say, you always had time for everybody else and not for us. And you've heard it. So let's commit to that and hold each other accountable and to seek to be accountable. Am I seeking accountability? And why would you appoint somebody if they weren't, okay? So these are things even you can weave into an appointment process, couldn't you? You know, who are you accountable to? How will you find that? Is that going to be with a team within the congregation or within the denomination? How are you accountable to your spouse? 
in an appropriate way? Where is the external voice and how could we find that if it's not obviously there? So this idea of core commitments that we can say, here is what we're aiming for, here's what we will work for, here's what I will encourage you to as someone that you lead. And then setting boundaries, which I've said this already, are intentional limits that we set on our thoughts and actions as an expression of biblical wisdom in order to protect us, those we serve, from real or perceived risk of harm and to preserve the reputation of the gospel and our churches and organizations. Long sentence, but you get the point. Boundaries that we set intentionally. Why? Because we care. Not because we just love policies and, and words, but because I care about the people that God has given me. I care about the gospel and the reputation of the church. And I care about my sustenance in God's ministry because I have a responsibility before God for that. And so we need boundaries. And in our document, we don't spell out exactly what those should be in these areas, but we identify five areas that those need to be in and we give some suggestions and I think each of you if you're in leadership or those who lead you should be able to say here here are our boundaries in safeguarding I, I think most of our churches will have that for children and adults at risk so that's probably there but needs to be constantly reviewed and could it be even better but confidentiality how does that work knowing when there is an appropriate limit to what you share, in other words, or to, to confidentiality, that there are times you must not keep confidentiality. When someone is at direct risk to themselves or to another, or when a court requires, a proper court of the land requires information, for example. But actually then how does confidentiality work beyond that so that people know that if they tell me something, I won't pass it on unless I've said that I'm going to pass it on, unless they've given me either that consent or, or that the understanding is. So how does that work? How does it work within marriage if you're a married person in ministry? How does it work within your team? So clarity about that. Money, sex, and power. If you were here on Monday again, I said these are the, the three big areas, aren't they? So how do I set limits on, on, on money? that I won't handle cash alone? How do I handle gifts? Is there a limit to that? Uh, just how does all of that work? How do I, or, or excusing myself and making sure I'm not unduly influencing the discussion about my salary or whatever it may be. And then how does, how does that work with sex? What are the positions and places of, that, that are tempting to me? I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Billy Graham rule, that idea that he had of never meeting alone with a, with a woman. And I, that's something that I've, I've sought to, to live by as well in ministry. No, so not in a private place. So I remember the story that Hillary Clinton wanted to meet him once, and he said, I'll meet you in, in this restaurant. And I don't think she was very happy about that, not just because he was probably old enough to be her father, but that was his lifelong principle. And he was therefore able to say, I've never been in a position where things could have happened that would have been improper. Now, of course, you could meet in a public place and still be flirting or fantasizing or whatever. So none of these boundaries guard the heart completely, but they saying, well, I, I, I never need to go there and therefore I won't go there. And I'd rather that someone was disappointed than, than that I was putting myself in a place of falling. 
that's just one example. It goes into the online space as well, doesn't it? Power. That's a little bit trickier sometimes, but how will I do that? Committing to say, for example, that I will always work within the proper processes that are in place. I'm not going to circumvent those or find a back door to get what I want. I, I'm going to maintain collective responsibility if I'm part of a team. I won't be the person who goes out of the team meeting and somebody says, oh, I don't really like that decision. I say, yeah, I didn't really agree either, you know, but you know, the majority said that I know that when we decide together, that is owned together. And I've got an option, either I resign if I really don't like it, or I hold to that with my fellow colleagues. So things like that. And of course, communication. How do I communicate to people? How is my electronic communication handled? Some of the big scandals, there was, yes, there was the formal, you know, business email from the organization, but there was another email account that was used for other stuff, a personal one that nobody else had access to. So using systems that are, can be at least transparent if there is an investigation or needs to be, avoiding flirtatious communication, keeping things very factual, understanding how things might be misread. So what boundaries do we need? Recognizing our limitations as well. Boundaries, self-care, I understand what it means. I'm not the biggest fan of the word, but actually saying I do have limits and I, and I need to guard those limits, not in a selfish way, but because by doing that, I can sustainably serve the Lord. And serving wisely within boundaries works best when there are agreed boundaries and ethical standards. In other words, and that these are transparent. They're publicly available. It's not just something you keep in your bottom drawer, okay? But actually, why not say, this is what we believe in, so help us do it. And if you think we're not, then tell us and we'll talk to you about that within our boundaries, okay, in a public place or whatever, right? But we'll, we'll, let's, let's hold ourselves to this. And leaders benefit from godly accountability partners. So we always encourage, seek out a, 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 an accountability partner or partners. Someone that, that can ask you the hard questions, the tough questions, and you've committed to be honest with. And suspected transgressions of boundaries must be handled appropriately. So it's not just that we have the boundaries, but we know what to do when it seems that they've been broken. And that means, appropriately means, uh, both with due process, clearly, honestly, not just brushed under the carpet, but also recognizing that Scripture says you don't entertain an accusation against uh, an overseer, an elder, lightly. Um, and therefore, that it's not just as soon as somebody says one thing, then that's it, you're out. There is a proper protection as well as taking that seriously. Just a little on leader care, and then I want to take the last few minutes just for comments and questions from the floor. But on leader care, here are some foundations. We believe that churches and Christian organizations that thrive spiritually are led by leaders who thrive spiritually. Hope you would agree. Yeah. We believe that the well-being of leaders and their families is a key responsibility of the churches and organizations they serve. We believe those with the responsibility of feeding others are sometimes the least well-nourished. Well, of course I believe that because I see it all the time. That they, the pastor or minister is often the second least well-fed person in the church. And who's the first? Their spouse. Yeah. 
often that is, that is our experience. And that leaders who are unburdened by unnecessary anxieties over terms and circumstances of ministry are better able to concentrate on gospel ministry and to lead joyfully. And breakdown in relationships between leaders and churches is always devastating to both and an obstacle to the spread of the gospel. And churches and organizations should be exemplary in how they care for leaders. We should be the gold standard, the very best. So can you agree with those, those principles? Well, on the basis of that principles, what do we do? Well, we suggest a covenant of care between the leader and the organization or congregation. And we give a template for that, but it's actually saying, why don't we, we formalize this and say, here is our commitment to you. Here is our responsibility as a church to you and your responsibility to us and our shared responsibility. And terms and conditions of employment that honor people. So looking at those not only through a legal lens, but through a gospel lens and understanding what's different about employed ministry from other types of employment, especially if those in the church who work out the terms and conditions aren't in ministry and, and only know what works in other places. Personal support and the opportunity for ministry development. Sabbaticals, breaks, Sabbath rest, someone available to give pastoral care, a mentor, opportunity to go to a conference, to go and speak somewhere else, not saying God has given us this person and we're going to keep them for ourselves, don't want them getting them. No, freedom to go where the Lord is leading as well as to fulfill their responsibilities in the place they're called to. Consultation and communication, making sure that decisions, although the person might not be in the room for the discussion about their terms and conditions, that the outcomes communicated clearly, the process is clear, they are listened to and consulted on. It's not just somebody sitting saying, oh, shall we allow them this or not? But actually, tell us why that would be good. Why are you asking for that? What is it that we could do? And a mutually agreed dispute resolution process. What do we do when it goes wrong? So that we don't have to make that up when it goes wrong. Now, again, that's hard because you, you, you'll not always be able to anticipate every issue. But what is the process that you have in place? How would you handle that? And how would that reflect biblical principles? Now, I've said a lot there. I, I would encourage you to check out, of course, I will, living leadership. But also, um, these are the three areas that we're involved in. And there is a little flyer for you to take away. But do check out the Leadership Commitment Scheme. We've made that available on a donation basis, but the donation amount, there are suggested amounts depending on the size of your church or organization. But actually, whatever you donate, you'll get exactly the same experience. And what that is, is the two codes of conduct, which by signing up, you're saying we will commit to these and put them into action, but also a set of toolkits for things like ministry reviews, it's a growing body, but things like how do I plan a sabbatical? Uh, how do we plan well for retirement is something we want to prepare down the line. Um, but we're building that and trying to give tools that will help you put some of this into action. But anyway, that's only one way to do it. The key point of this seminar is not sign up to this, but it is let's think more about this. Let's see what we can do in both leader care and leader conduct for the sake of the gospel and the health of the church. So we have um, a few minutes left for comments and questions. I'm also happy to hang around, but yes.
Feedback. Sorry, I was just going to say one wee second. Um, feedback forms, please. Why not, as we talk now, fill those in so that you can leave them behind um, for us. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So the question is, what, what success have we had in influencing theological seminaries and how they train leaders? Um, we're, we organizationally, I personally, am in the very early days of that. Um, so we are in conversation with some of the colleges about how we can help. And I think I'm quite heartened by the fact that some of those colleges increasingly recognize the need for it. Um, and in fact, are talking to us about how this it could become the norm that people start out in ministry accompanied by mentors. And I mean, supervision is an interesting term because in a counseling setting, that's quite formal. And it may be formal in a pastoral setting, but at the very least that there is a, a mentor and accountability partner. So yes, I think we're beginning to get there. But I think it is true, as I said earlier, that if we don't start out right, if we don't lay those foundations in training, then of course we're going to end up with problems down the line. So yeah, any Gilbert? Yeah, sorry about the, the. It's probably me moving around that's doing that. So go ahead. Mm. Yeah. So the comment is about uh, Act Seven and the or, or in, in, sorry not Act Seven but the appointment of the seven in Acts. Um, who were to manage the distribution of the food and the apostles and the church. In fact, the church appoints them. The apostles are, are told about the issue um, and connecting that with the role of, of deacons. So there is something there about understanding the role. That comes back to the job description. What is it, if it's somebody who we're appointing as a pastor, a minister, an elder, what is it that we actually want them to do? What is it that, that is distinctively the role of, of elders, pastors, overseers, again, whatever we call them? Uh, and I think in New Testament terms, it is what the apostles said they need to focus on, which is the ministry of the word and prayer. Because I think the ministry of the word encompasses both from what we would say from the pulpit and in the pew, but you know, it's both speaking to larger groups and working with individuals and families, and of course, prayer surrounding that. They need some degree of organization, but they shouldn't be bogged down with administration and, and that there should be others. And, and so recognizing the gifts of others, sometimes we've got structures that can get in the way of that or that can facilitate and help. But often around those structures, there are, there are ways to build around that things that help. So I do think you're right, thinking about what the role is, keeping focused on that role freeing people up from the other things that might distract them from it, getting good people around them, but good people who are also people of godly character and, and full of the spirit and wisdom. Not people who are sort of just over there, not great Christians, but you know they can do the accounts, but actually people who, who are godly and spiritual people. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So committing, the comment is in leader conduct, committing to, to seek the growth of my own faith, and that, that's great. As I, I, I might say, I think, I think in our longer sentences, it's probably implicit, but I'll go and review that as well. So that's a great insight, because we, you know, it, what is our commitment? It's not only to develop others, sometimes, it's kind of like because I've I know a bit more, I can do enough to get those people 
well, maybe they're growing, maybe they're just being entertained, <laughs> but I can do that. But, but am I actually growing? Am I developing? Am I continuing to walk in faith and, and dependence on the Lord? Am I learning more of him? Am I, am I rejoicing in that? That's really helpful. Thanks, Johnny. Yeah, no, that's really helpful, Johnny. And I mean, this the scheme that we're talking about here is designed for the local congregation um, or organizations. And I think that can work for congregations even within, say, um, the uh, or a parish within the, the um, Anglican setup. But yes, that's not the whole part of the story, although I think the same values run true. Um, and there are some good, I mean, some of the Anglican materials on... on um, conduct, they don't use that word necessarily, are really good. Whether they're enacted, whether they're upheld, I guess will vary from diocese to diocese or presbytery to presbytery or, you know, um, all of us in our different denominational settings. But I think what, at the very least, what we can do is as individuals and as the people that we are, the reason we focus on the congregation is because those are the people that you're eyeballing and who can eyeball you on a regular basis. But it's not to say that the denominational aspect is unimportant. And I think, I hope, again, it, part of this for me, I, I, I think when, what, what I find, what we find, say, in England from, from Church of England um, ministers, is that they'll say to us when they hit a really tough patch, you know, um, either their bishop doesn't understand, maybe theologically isn't aligned or wouldn't be sympathetic. But even if they think the bishop is sympathetic, they are concerned that that person, you know, it's going to go on my record. And when that bishop passes on the mantle, then I don't know who else is going to be there. And, and it's, I mean, that may or may not be true, but when you're vulnerable, it feels true. So I think I believe that every, whatever our setup, that external, completely safe place who has no agenda other than your well-being is, is rich. So I think finding that support and accountability outside the structures without undermining the structure. So one of our commitments for our, our, our workers, our associates and staff is that we're never going to take people, we're never going to say, oh no, don't follow that. We're going to encourage you also to follow those structures, but we will be there to walk with you in that and help you reflect on that and support you when that doesn't go well um, as well. But it's a helpful point, Johnny. And that's probably a wider comfort. You can do a seminar on that next year. <laughs> Reforming the denominations. All right. I, I know time is up. In fact, it's beyond up. I, I Forgive me for that. I'm very happy to stay and talk to folks. Um, would it be okay if I pray for us as we stop? And I, I hope you find something helpful in there. Maybe it's the beginning of a conversation, something to go away with and think about or talk about. Please, if I can help you at all, just um, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Father, we thank you for your goodness. You love your church. You love the people that you have redeemed for yourself, that you have bought with your own blood. Those of us who lead want to learn from you how to love your church, even when we find them unlovable, and undoubtedly they find us unlovable at times too. We recognize a need to guard our hearts and our souls. We recognize too, Father, a need to, to think more about how we really care well for the people you entrust to our care, but we too as leaders have need 
to be cared for, and that's not wrong. And Father, forgive us where we have got this wrong. And Father, help us to recognize that. And if there is anyone here who needs to repent of a serious failure in leadership, an abusive situation, may they see and confront that before you. But Father, help us to keep reflecting, keep learning. We just want to be faithful to you. We don't think that it's all about what we put in writing or our boundaries and policies. We want those to serve the glory of our Lord Jesus and the good of those he loves so that when he returns, he will find faith on the earth, faithful people who are serving him. And that, Father, we can look to his face and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So keep us in your love and in your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.